Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 103, She's Her Own Boss. Last week I mentioned that I was flying down to Orange, California to see a documentary called Hellbound with my fellow contributors at RethinkingHell.com and I suggested that if anybody was in the area they might come out to the documentary if they wanted to meet me. Well, hopefully nobody that n- none of you listening took me up on that offer uh, because if you did, you will have discovered that my wife and I weren't able to make it. Um, we missed our flight out of Seattle by a minute uh, and it was one minute too late to possibly get on the plane and so uh, we ended up having to take a flight that was some six hours later and we couldn't make it to the documentary in time and uh, so hopefully none of you were standing around waiting to meet me I I doubt that I doubt that you did, but if you did, I apologize. Um, my wife and I did have a good time at uh, Disneyland and at California Adventure with what little time we had. Uh, we enjoyed the Jason Mraz concert that we went and watched as well. Sunday, we had more airline troubles. Our flight back to Seattle was canceled uh, about after sitting in the cabin for an hour in the heat. Uh, and we ended up having to take a flight a few hours later to Denver with a connecting flight to Seattle, and we didn't get back home until uh, eight or nine hours later than we had originally planned. And on top of that, I got sick and missed Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of this week, uh, missed work, staying home sick. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm I'm back in the saddle now. I'm feeling mostly recovered, and I'm glad that you've joined us for this episode of the, the Apologetics Podcast, uh, in which you're going to hear an interview with Dr. Philip Payne, uh, who joins me a second time to give his response to the recent appearance by Dr. Jim Hamilton, who had appeared, as you'll recall, a few weeks ago to critique uh, Dr. Payne and his egalitarianism. Uh, But before we do that, we'll go ahead and we'll play the next promo in the rotation, which is for James White's The Dividing Line. Webcasting around the world from the desert metropolis of Phoenix, Arizona, this is The Dividing Line. The Apostle Peter commanded Christians to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us, yet to give that answer with gentleness and reverence. Our host is Dr. James White, director of Alpha to Omega Ministries and an elder at the Phoenix Reformed Baptist Church. This is a live program, and we invite your participation. If you'd like to talk with Dr. White, call now at 602-973-4602 or toll-free across the United States. It's 1-877-753-3341. And now with today's topic, here is James White. It is true, as some of you might know, that Dr. White has lost a certain amount of respect for me or, uh, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't recommend my show any longer, whereas he once might have. Uh, and this is as a result of my having become convinced of conditional immortality. But, nevertheless, I still highly recommend James and his show and his ministry, Alpha and Omega, his, uh, his show, The Dividing Line. And I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, you can find the, the Alpha and Omega website at aomin.org. Uh, there you can find the, the webcast, which is uh, live most Tuesday mornings at 11 a.m. Pacific and most Thursday afternoons at 4 p.m. Uh, 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, you can also subscribe to the podcast there at the website um, where you can listen to past episodes. So I would encourage you to check it out. And with that, we're going to go ahead and move into today's interview with Dr. Philip Payne. Well, she don't mind. 
I'm joined once again by my guest, Dr. Philip Payne, egalitarian author of Man and Woman, One in Christ. I first interviewed him in May of this year to give him an opportunity to present us with his case for egalitarianism, the view that the Bible allows both men and women to fill authoritative teaching roles in the church, and that husbands and wives submit to one another with equal authority. Dr. Payne joins me a second time to respond to my August interview with complementarian Dr. Jim Hamilton. Thanks so much for joining me today, Doc. You're You're welcome. Now, it looks like you've been a little busy since last we spoke. Not long after your first appearance on my show, you posted at your blog that you and your wife were traveling to Uganda and Kenya in July. Can you tell us about that trip and what you guys were up to there? It was amazing. I have never before seen the Lord work in such dramatic ways using unexpected things for his glory. It was transformative for me and, by God's grace, for many others. Uh, although my wife and I, due to a late flight and reception dinner in Uganda, didn't get to bed until 3 in the morning and had to be up at 6 the next morning for a full Saturday of lectures, I didn't feel any jet lag mm. the entire trip. And God gave me voice strength and clarity of mind for the entire uh, series of many, many lectures. On my next Sunday, uh, I gave three sermons at St. Luke Nintendo's. And I focused on what I wanted most to convey, namely that each person there should find assurance of salvation through trusting the promises of God's word. After I shared my talk and my own experience, uh, my host got up and said, are any of you, like pain, uh, having doubts about your salvation and wanting to know, but you've in effect been calling God a liar by not accepting his promises. And fully 70% of the congregation that was packed out in this cathedral rose to their feet. And uh, it just blew me away. The next day, I was supposed to go to an Anglican pastor's conference. It turned out they they were not Anglican pastors, they were Pentecostal pastors. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have a projector, so I just spoke from my heart for three hours, and it worked out so much better that way. Uh, then when we got to Kenya and the major conference was on, it's like every talk leading up to mine the first day said what we really need are exegetical answers to these uh, passages that we don't understand, how to understand. And my whole talk was about those very passages, and the response was amazing, amazing eye contact. Uh, Afterwards, uh, people said they were just... That's just what they needed to hear. Uh, The next day, I was able to talk about church fathers and how the church fathers uh, understood these passages and how many of them, including African church fathers like Origen and Augustine and Tertullian, gave the same extralical insights that are the basis of my own understanding. Mm. Uh, Then uh, some of the teachers in the university said, we've been taught that Paul didn't write the pastoral epistles or Ephesians or these other letters. And I was able to go through uh, the evidence for Pauline authorship and why the objections raised to it uh, don't carry weight. And it was, I felt like I was in the right place at the right time. Uh, One of the bishops said that if you had come to Africa 12 years ago, and we'd had a conference like this every year since, Africa would be a different place today. 
That's that's an incredible compliment. Uh, it sounds like a it sounds like a great trip. Um, s- since that trip, you've had a chance to listen to the interview that I gave with Dr. Hamilton, uh, who appeared on my show in August to respond to your interview. We're going to get into specifics in a moment, but just sort sort of overall, what what thoughts do you have about Hamilton's response? Oh my, I must admit that I was disappointed both in the tone and the substance of his remarks. He seems so committed to the functional subordination of women in the church and in the home that he refuses to appreciate the weight of biblical evidence against his view. He seems to treat every piece of evidence against his view as though it can be dismissed in isolation against the combined evidence for his paradigm. Like Hume, dismissed every evidence for miracles as insignificant against the universal experience of humanity, Hamilton dismisses every evidence for the egalitarian view as insignificant against the biblical mandate that women must not teach or exercise authority over a man. Yet, when you asked him, he was unable to identify a single instance of the verb he translates exercise authority anywhere near the time of Paul. Even on issues where in personal correspondence with him, and in my book, I provided clear evidence he repeatedly asserted that I have no evidence. Mm. Time and again, he rejects the most natural reading of the text because it conflicts with his paradigm. Ironically, however, he kept accusing me of disregarding the text, even though it was the text that caused me to change my views. I love the scriptures. And it hurt me terribly to hear their most obvious message dismissed so cavalierly again and again. Yeah. Yeah, I can appreciate that in, in the sense that um, you, I, I hold views that other people don't. And when I'm discussing them, I don't mind if in the end somebody disagrees with me. But what I can't stand, what really hurts me is when what I consider to be you know, good evidence is is dismissed you know uh without it without ever being, take, being taken seriously so I, I can i can appreciate how you felt now early on in that interview dr hamilton said that it seemed to him as though egalitarians uh i think he said they're gonna he thinks they're gonna win the debate by perseverance by consistently beating the same drum and, and recycling all the same arguments and he didn't think that your book was an exception to that uh he said that he had read the book very carefully but found more of the same old arguments is is that true does your book offer nothing new well according to most reviewers Dr. Hamilton's assessment is not correct. Hmm. Uh, Aida Spencer, who knows egalitarian contributions to this topic far better than Dr. Hamilton, wrote in her review that man and woman, one in Christ, is full of original contributions, particularly on 1 Timothy 2, 8-15, Rabban Gamaliel II, Genesis 1-3, the seed and the childbirth. Its study of kephale is definitive. Dr. Robert McGregor Wright writes, its evidence regarding the interpolation of 1 Corinthians 14, 34-5 is remarkable. It's by far the most important contribution to the debate about women's roles in the 21st century so far. Paul Adams writes that it's full of important findings. Its kephale research is priceless. Professor Manfred Brauch of Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary praised its amazing exegetical, linguistic, historical, and theological content. What a gift to scholars in the church. Teresa Okure, in her in the review of biblical literature, wrote, scholars will find fresh insights, especially in the rich reference to ancient authors. Mm. Here are seven specific examples of original contributions that no other egalitarian prior to my book 
has argued, one, the Dystigma obelis symbol in Codex Vaticanus consistently occurs at the locations of widely acknowledged multi-word interpolations. Two, Codex Fulensis has rewritten replacement text for 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 40 in the bottom margin, omitting verses 34 to 5. Mm. Number three, the text of manuscript 88 reads 1 Corinthians 14, 36 immediately after verse 33, even though his later editions show that he thought 34 to 5 should be put after verse 33. Mm. Number four, there's never been such a comprehensive analysis of 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16 that makes sense of all its parts. Number five, there was previously no such comprehensive case that both the history of the use of authenteo and the context of it, of it in 1 Timothy 2.12 shows that it should be translated assume authority. Number six, in every instance where authenteo means assume authority, it refers to authority that is not generally recognized but is seized without authorization. Number seven, most of Gamaliel's surviving statements in the Mishnah affirm greater rights for women than most of his contemporaries would affirm. Yeah, it definitely sounds like your book does, in fact, bring some things new to the debate. I'll admit that I'm not as familiar with the debate as Dr. Hamilton might be, but it really did strike me when I read the book that I was reading things that I had never read before from egalitarians. So uh, I think I'm inclined to agree with you there. Now, Dr. Hamilton had objected to your use of what he considers to be emotionally charged language, using words like exclude and discriminate, uh, language that he thinks do doesn't fairly represent complementarianism and which he thinks unhelpfully muddies <laughs> muddies the water of the debate. What do, you, what do you think? Do you think that your use of language like that is uh, appropriate? My language is no less emotionally charged than Paul's language to Peter when he excluded Gentiles from table fellowship. Paul called Peter a hypocrite and accused him of acting contrary to the gospel in Galatians 2. Fortunately, Peter repented, as is evident in his calling all Paul's letters, which always included Galatians, Scripture. I'm, I'm simply following Paul in associating racial discrimination, different treatment of slaves than free, and gender discrimination in Galatians 3.28, where he states there is no Jew-Gentile division, there is no slave-free division, there is no male-female division, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus used far more emotionally charged language to those who distorted God's word and excluded and discriminated against those Jesus was inviting into the kingdom. The words I used accurately express what that complementarians exclude women from teaching in the church and exercising authority over men. Dr. Hamilton's language about me on his website and in his Theopologics interview is, I dare say, significantly more emotionally charged than anything in my book or my Theopologetics interview. The key problem with what Dr. Hamilton says about man and woman, one in Christ, however, is that so much of it is simply not true. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll let the listeners be the judge of that. I'm not going to chime in. Um, but, but Dr. Hamilton, Hamilton also said that you falsely accused editors of censorship. He, he stated, quote, 
This is a serious matter. Payne owes apologies to Moo and Kostenberger. This was uncalled for. It's a bald allegation for which he has no evidence. He owes them an apology. He had no evidence, unquote. And then in particular, he called you out for making the following statement secondhand about Doug Moo's rejection of Richard Servan's rejoinder to Grudem's long article on Kefle. Uh, the, the quote is, on May 1st, 1991, I think this is from your book. On May 1st, 1991, Servan submitted his rejoinder to Trinity Journal, but its editor, Douglas Moo, refused to publish it even after devoting two articles totaling 111 pages to Grudem's view and only 34 pages to Servan's. So, so what do you have to say to this, uh, to Dr. Hamilton's claim that you don't have any evidence for censorship or for, uh, for edit- editorial privilege being abused, that kind of a thing? Well, first of all, I did a computer search of the electronic version of my book and found no instance of censor or censorship anywhere in the book. I would rather just ignore such accusations, but Romans 14.14 14 states, Do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. I know whatever statements my book makes regarding Moo and Kostenberger to be true. Richard Servan mailed me a copy of his letter to editor Moo and his letters, letters to Grudem as well as a copy of the excellent article that Moo rejected. I still have all of these. Every other statement Dr. Hamilton says I should repent of is factually true. I have the proof. And furthermore, I've explained enough of that proof to Dr. Hamilton in personal correspondence that I am frankly amazed he continues to say these things. There should be no place in this debate for baseless accusations. So, so just for the record, do you, do you believe that editors of certain journals have, exor- have abused editorial privilege in excluding, uh, excluding egalitarian treatments but allowing many more complementarian ones? Oh, yes. Let me give you just two examples. My father uh, gave an annual lecture in the Dehradun Seminary in India. My father's an Old Testament professor. And every year, this seminary published this annual lecture in its journal. The previous year, George Knight had given uh, an essay in which he advocated the complementarian position. A dad's lecture was about women leaders in the Old Testament, in which he argued that women held every leadership position in the Old Testament except that for, that of priest. Well, the editor of that journal refused to publish the article. And he said we couldn't publish it unless there was a, uh, a viewpoint uh, giving the, the opposite viewpoint in the same journal. Well, uh, what about the previous year? I understand. Okay, for, for myself, I had an article that was already accepted in the journal of the Evangelical Theological Society on this issue of the conjunction of 1 Timothy 2.12. It had been accepted, but Kostenberg took over the editorship. I emailed the editor saying, why haven't I seen it published? And he said, uh, Kostenberger's taken over the editorship. We have to talk to him. And uh, he said uh, he would not publish the article unless I rewrote it to take into account more recent data. So I rewrote it, taking into account the most recent data, including his own contributions, submitted it, and he said it would go through the normal editorial process of going out for review, but within a week of the time, I submitted that article. I got an email back saying the editorial committee had decided they would not publish the article. Hmm. And I asked uh, Kostenberger, 
did it go through the channels? Did you send it out for review? And he never answered the question. Then that same article was published in New Testament Studies, which is the most difficult journal to get published in in the world, in New Testament. So, yes, I believe there was uh, editorial uh, censorship in my case. Furthermore, ever since Kostenberger has become editor of the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, I have not seen a single article that has given an exegetical defense of the egalitarian position. But there's been a steady stream of articles that defend the complementarian position. And I've talked to many people who have submitted articles to that journal, had them rejected, and then had them published in more prestigious journals. That, to me, is as close to proof as you can get of censorship. All right. Okay, well, so another thing that uh, Hamilton would say at various points in the interview were things like pain is not sensitive to the context or interprets without regard to the context and does not allow the internal logic of the passage to flow naturally from what the text says. How would you respond to this charge that in order to find your view of women in ministry in the relevant text, you have to sort of shoehorn them in, in, into a place they don't belong? You've got to ignore the context to squeeze them in there. I challenge listeners to actually read my exegesis of 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16 or 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15, or Galatians 3, 28, then you will know that my work is driven by the text and its context. And only an exegesis that makes sense of the entire text, including every word of it, so that it flows naturally, will satisfy me. That's why I began my study of 1 Timothy 2, 12 for months, reading the entire book of 1 Timothy every day in Greek. Hamilton's judgment is the opposite of the vast majority of those who have written a response to man and woman, one in Christ. For instance, Aida Spencer wrote in her review, no exegetical area is left without extensive study of its grammatical and historical component elements and its relationship to the whole structure. David Booth of Western Australia wrote, I was a long-time adherent to the Christians for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood's Danvers Statement. I had assumed the exegetical and theological issues were settled by Grudem, Schreiner, and Kostenberger. However, exegetically, this book is the best. It has won me over with regards to ministry roles. It is a fruitful and stimulating, paradigm-changing challenge. I have certainly, by God's grace, come a long way from the days when I loudly opposed and even debated against any position which had a whiff of egalitarianism on the subject. I plan to reread the book. Shirley Barron writes of its extraordinarily well-done, careful exegesis. Teresa Okura writes, throughout the work, Payne takes pains to show that many previous readings missed the point of the passages analyzed, especially 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16, due either to lack of attention to the original context presuppositions from the reader's, reader's context, and or the limitations of the English language imposed on the text, such as the use of gendered pronouns in translations where none exist in Greek. 
Yeah, it, it does sound like uh, the claim that you're ignoring context is a little bit of a, the minority view. And, and it does strike me that if I recall, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, y- you were a complementarian and it wasn't a desire to see egalitarianism in the text that, can, that caused you to re-examine things. It was, it was exegesis in context. Isn't that right? Exactly so. Uh-huh. Uh, when I was at Cambridge and I heard a lecturer say he believed there was no passage in the New Testament properly understood in its original context that limits the ministry of women, uh, I almost stood up in the class and said, that's not true. But instead, I went back and started reading through 1 Timothy and Greek every day. And it was because of that reading and seeing the passage in its context, I concluded I cannot disprove this guy. And it led to other things. It took me about seven years before I was willing, uh, and I was actually forced by my exegesis, to give up the view that I had authority over my wife. Uh, I was keen in our marriage vows that my wife state that she would obey me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I studied Paul's statements and looked at the context, I real, realized I was reading into them an understanding of head that was foreign to normal Greek usage and not fair to the context in which Paul uh, taught. Or I didn't pay attention to the appositional structures that Paul gave that explained what he meant. So I finally gave up my position, not because I wanted to give up being the head. I kind of like being the boss, but because (laughs) I don't believe the Bible teaches that. Yeah. Yeah, and I can relate. Uh, I'm not going to mention specifics for the sake of uh, anybody listening. I don't want to muddy the waters, but there are positions I once held that I was forced to change simply because of what the text says, not because I desired otherwise. So, yeah, I I can relate to that. Let's dive in now into some of the specific things that he said that stuck out to you as you listened to that interview. You, you, As you know, you sent me a number of things that he said that you wanted to respond to. And one of them is he said something along the lines that the Genesis account tells us that woman, uh, that woman was made to help the man in his care for the creation and not to care for it herself. Is that is that not the case? Uh, Hamilton seems to misunderstand the language of Genesis. The Hebrew description of the woman, sometimes translated helper, is a noun, a strength as in front of him, namely a strength corresponding to him. It's almost always, 16 out of 19 times, used of God who rescues his people, and three times of a military rescuer. Never does it imply a subordinate role. The text nowhere says that the woman was made to help man, but as his equal or even his protector. As for woman being made to work and keep the garden with man, Genesis 1 affirms their joint dominion over the animals and plants. This implies that together they would care for creation. Nowhere does the Genesis account of creation or its subsequent text state that woman should not work and keep the earth. Okay. Now, when I interviewed you that first time, you listed many women in leadership, uh, specifically leadership over men in the Old Testament. But Dr. Hamilton makes the point that you're confusing descriptive language with prescriptive language. What what do you say about this? It's important to distinguish between neutral or descriptive language from positive or prescriptive language. But unfortunately for Dr. Hamilton, this distinction supports God-sanctioned leadership by women and does not support male-only leadership. Positive prescriptive language applies to most women leadership in the Old Testament. 
but most of the male leaders identified in the Old Testament are described using merely neutral descriptive language, and many of them are described negatively. On the one hand, Hamilton says, I'm claiming prescriptions from descriptions, positive from the neutral. But my statements are actually prescriptive. On the other hand, he's claiming prescriptions for himself from descriptions in the text. Mm. This isn't just a case of the pot calling the kettle black. It's a black pot calling a white kettle black. Mm. I'm not speaking about quality of our personal character, but of our arguments. I gave many examples where God put women in leadership positions or blessed them in those positions. God sends the prophetess Miriam to lead Israel. The Lord raised up the judge and prophetess Deborah to be the highest leader in Israel in her day. She saved Israel from the hands of her enemies. The obedience of men to the leadership of Huldah sparked what's probably the greatest revival in the history of Israel. Moses said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets. The Lord would put his spirit on them. Joel predicted a greater prophetic role for women. This is prescriptive language. Never does the Bible state that these women are exceptions to a scriptural principle. If it were inherently wrong, in opposition to the creation order for a woman to be in leadership, would God have appointed them to those positions, or would God have blessed them in those positions? But on the other hand, Hamilton argues that because of the overwhelming preponderance of male leaders in the Old Testament, that God must want men to rule. In fact, the Bible criticizes most of Israel's and Judah's kings. The Old Testament never states that God permits only males to have authority over other males, or only males to teach males. It's Hamilton who is mischaracterizing descriptive language about men as prescriptive and mischaracterizing prescriptive language about women as merely descriptive. Okay, I understand. I want to. This wasn't in the questions that we uh, were that you know that I sent you beforehand. But a thought just occurred to me when I when I've talked with my my best friend who's a complementarian, he said that from his recollection, many if not the vast majority of these cases in which uh, a woman is a leader in the Old Testament, uh, it, it's because there were no men, there were no uh, uh, men of sufficient quality to do the leading, and so the women were uh, took over the leadership just because there were no good men there. What would you, how do you respond to that kind of a thing? Well, first of all, uh, I don't think that God is so impotent that he couldn't find a single man or gift a single man to take leadership. Mm. These passages specifically state that the Lord raised up Deborah. I mean, mm. it doesn't say uh, that the Lord reluctantly raised up Deborah. It says <laughs> okay. the Lord raised her up and made her the highest leader. The the fact that God has himself put these women in leadership is, uh, to me, conclusive proof that it is not inherently against God's plan for women to have leadership over men. Yeah. 
No, I understand, and it's it's interesting. My my friend and I are both reformed, and and we might disagree there. That's okay, but uh, but but it, but it does strike me that uh, if we believe that God uh, sovereignly raises up male leaders or, uh, or female leaders, there's no reason why instead of these female leaders, he couldn't have done that with males. So I, I hear what you're saying. He, he the text seems to suggest that he chose to raise up female leaders, which he could have done with men. So yeah, I, I would agree with you there. Um, but when I asked Dr. Hamilton about the existence of female prophets and leaders and stuff in the Old Testament, he admitted that there was one here and there. Uh, but he said that there were no female kings, and he finds that noteworthy in part of this overall theme he thinks he sees in Scripture of men rather than women in leadership. What do you make of that? Dr. Hamilton illegitimately bases this distinction on a difference in English, separating king from queen since they are completely different words in English. But identifying prophet and prophetess since they are the same word in English, except for the feminine ending. In Hebrew, however, which is our authoritative original text, queen is simply king, melech, with a feminine ending identifying the king as female, just as prophetess is simply prophet with a feminine ending identifying the prophet as female. Queen Esther had sufficient influence to save her people from imminent genocide and to bring about the destruction of the house of Haman along with 75,000 enemies of the Jews. She, along with Mordecai, wrote with full authority. And Esther's decree confirmed these regulations. The Bible praises the Queen of Sheba and the Queen of Chaldea. Although Queens Jezebel and Athaliah, who ruled the land for six years, were wicked, like most of Israel's kings, the Bible does not criticize them or any other woman on the grounds that it was wrong for a woman to have authority over a man. Mm. Women prophets cannot be that easily dismissed either in the Old or the New Testament. As I just mentioned, God sent the prophetess Miriam to lead Israel. Deborah was a prophetess and the highest leader in Israel in her day. Priests consulted the prophetess Huldah when they found the lost book of the law. Moses said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them in Numbers 11:29. The first two prophets of the New Testament era who broke the silence of prophecy in the scriptures throughout the intertestamental period were women. Luke 1, 41-45 states, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Mary's response in uh, Luke 1, 46 to 55 was the second New Testament prophecy. Hmm. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. It is full of Old Testament allusions, especially to Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, 1 to 10. And it concludes just as he promised our ancestors. Consequently, it can properly be regarded as the first Christian exegesis of the Old Testament. Shortly thereafter, Luke 2, 36-38 identifies the message from the prophetess Anna at the presentation of Jesus at the temple. She gave thanks to God and spoke of him to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Joel's prophecy, your sons and daughters will prophesy, was fulfilled at Pentecost. Philip's four unmarried daughters prophesied. 
1 Corinthians 11 even gives instructions to every woman who prays or prophesies. And chapter 14 repeatedly encourages everyone to prophesy. In the New Testament, men and women are equally encouraged to prophesy and equally affirmed in their prophetic utterances. Okay, so we've got uh, female prophets and leaders and queens all in the Old Testament. But but we, we, would, we should probably talk for a moment about priests. Uh, continuing with this issue of women and leadership in the Old Testament, I tried as best I could, and, and you'll have to forgive me. Any egalitarians listening will have to forgive me because I am kind of new to this debate, and I might not have done a very good job. But I tried to represent what I understood egalitarian response to the question of why only men were priests. And what I tried to explain to Dr. Hamilton was that it might have been to avoid uh, similarities with paganism's uh, priestesses, you know, uh, temple I don't know, they're, they're priestesses in paganism. Now, Dr. Hamilton had responded by saying that paganism had male priests as well. So can you elaborate a little bit more and sort of undo whatever damage I might have done? Oh. Uh, can, can you elaborate a little bit more on what the egalitarian response is to this issue of the prescription of only male priests in the Old Testament? Fertility cults were rampant in the ancient Near East, and priestesses played a crucial role in cultic fertility rites. Male priests in the ancient Near East had many roles and were not nearly as closely associated with prostitution as priestesses. Hmm. As a result, the risk that God's sexual ideals would be misrepresented by the existence of priestesses was far greater than it was for men. Knowing what we do of Israelite history, if priestesses had been permitted, they surely would have been used as prostitutes. The risk was not nearly as great for male priests. Just ask yourself. How many references can you think of where the Old Testament describes Israel's priests as prostitutes? And you'll realize that this was not nearly as great a risk factor as women priestesses would have been. Deuteronomy 13:17 explicitly states, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. Note that the daughters are listed first presumably because that was the greater risk, as it is in most societies. The addition of, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, makes it clear that this too is sin. The other alternative was to have no priests at all, but that would have had an even greater downside. Yeah. Yet in spite of the Israelite priesthood being male, God commanded Moses to call all the children of Israel to be a, quote, kingdom of priests, and a holy nation, Exodus 19.6. And Isaiah 61.6 predicts a future when all God's people will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. This proves that God was not, even then, in the Old Testament, opposed to women being priests. So what would you say, I'm just curious, if the surrounding cultures did not have a problem with uh, with these cult priestesses, uh, but they did have a, a real problem, particularly amongst women, of uh, pro, uh, prophetess priestesses, or, sorry, prophetess prostitutes, then do you think that probably what we would see is a prescription of female priests as well, but a prohibition, but, but no female prophets? Yeah, possibly. Possibly. Okay. It, it's, hard to, it's hard to conjecture because we're dealing with issues that relate to huge cultural issues. Sure. And uh, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He sees things we don't see. And sometimes we conjecture reasoning, but only God knows all of his reasons. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, okay, so with everything that we've just talked about in mind about women leaders in the Old Testament, how would you respond to Dr. Hamilton's statement that your references to women leaders in the Old Testament aren't very accurate, they're, they're, they're not very helpful? Well, first of all, he didn't identify a single inaccurate statement by me about women leaders in the Old Testament, either in my podcast or in my book. It is undoubtedly true, however, that the reference I cite, references I cite to women put in leadership over men by God and blessed by God in the Old Testament are not helpful to the complementarian thesis that it is against God's design for women to teach or to be in authority over a man. <laughs> yeah, I guess that uh, that does sound undoubtedly true. Well, okay, now if I recall... When I had suggested that perhaps the reason Jesus had no female apostles among the twelve was because it would have been uh, inappropriate uh, to spend close intimate time in private with women, Dr. Hamilton's response was that Jesus uh, was a groundbreaker. You know, he often ignored the customs and traditions of his day and that he wouldn't have worried about how improper it might have seemed to others if he were to have female apostles. Uh, if he, if I, and the reason I, I'm not sure if I remember Dr. Hamilton saying that, but I know a close friend of mine did when I, when I mentioned this. Uh, and, and, of course, Jesus did spend some time in private with women, it seems to me. I'm thinking of Mary and Martha, for example. So, uh, again, in, in case I've misrepresented this response, can you can you explain better why it is that you don't think that your view is challenged by Jesus' selection of only males in his inner circle? Remember that the apostles were with Jesus virtually constantly for three years, spending extended periods, periods in isolated places. Mm. This is far different than brief encounters, for instance, with the Samaritan woman, or at Mary and Martha's house. They were not staying in places with private toilets and showers. Jesus' choice of men as his constant companions protected not merely his own reputation, but that of the twelve, on whose integrity the church would depend, not to mention the enhanced flexibility of movement. Hmm. Four observations in particular show that Jesus did not intend his choice of twelve male apostles to exclude women from ministry. First, it is equally true that Jesus didn't appoint any Gentile or slave as a member of the Twelve. The same logic would exclude women from church leadership, would also exclude Gentiles and slaves. Mm. Second, Jesus' appointment of twelve Jewish men paralleled the twelve sons of Israel and reinforced the symbolism of the church as the new Israel. It's not aimed against women in church leadership. Third, we know that Jesus must not have wanted only male disciples because he encouraged women as disciples. When Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening, the posture and position of a disciple, Jesus affirms here, Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken away from her. Fourth, Luke identifies Junia as outstanding among the apostles in Romans 16:7. Now the apostles include James, the Lord's brother, Galatians 1.19, and Paul, who were both more influential than any of the twelve. Just look at the Jerusalem Council. Hmm. Jesus' choice of the twelve in no way excludes women from leadership in the church. Okay. Hey, I, I, I could see that. Uh, continuing with Jesus and people that he appointed, you noted that Dr. Hamilton claimed that Jesus never appointed any woman as an authoritative representative, let alone one of the twelve. What, what do you have to say about that? Christ appointed Mary Magdalene as apostle to the apostles in John 20. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your, father, my, your God. 
Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what he had said, that he had said these things to her. Jesus clearly authorized her to tell the apostles about his resurrection and ascension. If that's not sending a woman as an authoritative representative, I don't know what is. Okay, I'm, I'll, I'll think about that one more. I'm not sure uh, that I buy that one just yet, but, but I think it gives us something to think about. Um, now, you and I had discussed last time that Paul called Phoebe a prostatis, uh, which you believe is a position of leadership. You noted that in the interview, Dr. Hamilton didn't agree, and he said that it's only used once in the New Testament and refers to a supportive role rather than a, a, a role of leadership. What's your take on that? His reading doesn't make sense with the context or the plain meaning of the word. If Phoebe only had a supportive role, why does Paul say in verse 2, do whatever she asks of you? The plain meaning of this word refers to leadership. Every meaning of every New Testament word composed from pro, meaning in rank above, and histemi, meaning to stand, that could fit this passage, refers to leadership. Prostatis was the title of the president of a synagogue and of other associations. If Paul had wanted to make the parallel Hamilton alleges here, helper, for she's been a helper of others, he should have used the common word for help, which uses para alongside instead of pro, or some other expression that did not convey leadership. Okay. Okay, and, and what about Prissa or Priscilla? Uh, Dr. Hamilton didn't seem to think that it's significant that she's named first by Paul before her husband in explaining the way of God more accurate, accurately to Apollos. What do you think? Why is it more significant than perhaps Dr. Hamilton is able to see? Greek convention indicates that Prisca was listed first in each of these passages about their ministry because she played the leading role in that ministry. By Greek convention, husbands' names were listed before their wives, unless the statement applied with particular prominence to the wife, or the wife was a particularly prominent person. We know that Luke and Paul did not list Prisca's name first because of her wealth or prominence, required this, for both Luke and Paul follow the normal convention of listing the husband's name first in their first reference to Aquila and Priscilla. That's in Acts 18.2 and 1 Corinthians 16.9. Mm. But both Luke and Paul always list Priscilla's name first when identifying their active ministry. Look at Acts 18.26, Romans 16.3, 2 Timothy 4.19. This is a clear indication of Prisca's prominence in ministry in each of these passages. It is highly improbable that it's just by chance that both Luke and Paul always broke Greek convention by listing Prisca's name first in every passage that refers to their ministry. Hmm. Greek convention indicates that Paul was that Prisca was listed first in each of these passages about their ministry because she played the leading role in that ministry. Okay. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Let's spend some time with this kephalate issue, the, the Greek word for head, and whether or not it refers to someone in authority. Uh, as support for his claim that kephalate as head is used as a position of authority in the Septuagint, Dr. Hamilton quoted the ESV translation of Psalm 110.6, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth where the Septuagint translates the Hebrew word for head using kephale. Does that challenge your contention concerning kephale? Is this an example uh, where it does refer to someone in authority? Hamilton is incorrect to suggest that kephalos 
in the Septuagint here means chiefs or leaders. The Greek text clearly means exactly what the Bagster and Zondervan editions of the Septuagint translated as, as meaning. He shall crush the heads of many on the earth. This is a literal reference to the heads of many, not a metaphorical reference to chiefs. The ESV is not a translation of the Septuagint, but of the Hebrew scriptures. This is just another example showing that Septuagint translators did not regard kephale as a natural word to convey leader. My book lists the data showing that in only six of 171 instances where head, rosh in Hebrew, may convey leader, did the standard Septuagint translate it with a metaphor kephale in a way that clearly means leader. If you don't mind me speculating a little bit, or if you don't mind me asking you <laughs> to speculate a little bit, why do you think there are these six uh, instances out of 171? Oh, it's, it's very easy. Uh, first of all, uh, the goal of the Septuagint translators was to give us, to give their contemporaries, as literal a translation of the Hebrew as possible. The Hebrew word rosh, when it refers to a physical head, is almost always translated kephale. Therefore, it's the obvious uh, choice in those cases. And so when they were translating passages with the word rosh, in trying to be faithful to the Hebrew, what's the closest equivalent in, in Greek? No question, kephale. But why is it then that in every instance, when it speaks of the heads of the tribes of Israel, which clearly refers to leaders, not a single Septuagint passage translates it kephale to mean leader. Uh, in one case, it speaks of the tops of their staves using the word kephale, but meaning the tops of the staves, not the heads of the tribes. Right. Um, the, the, their goal was to present a literal translation. Obviously, they would want to choose kephale. The fact that many times they used kephale but changed the other words around it to make it make sense in Greek shows how awkward that was in, uh, in Greek. Of the six, three occur in a short passage in Judges. So one translator, hmm. wanting to have a very literal uh, sense, uh, went for that. Okay. Yeah, I understand. I mean, it, I, I just found it curious uh, because it seems to me that uh, of those other 171 instances where Rosh means leader, uh, the Septuagint translators must have used other Greek words besides kephale uh, to translate it. And so it just seemed a little curious to me that there did happen to be these six places where they chose uh, kephale. But it sounds like to me that what, given that there was a number of translators involved, I can see the possibility that one of them sort of you know, did something a little bit differently from the rest. Is that kind of what you're saying? And because of his desire to, as, as literally as possible, translate the Hebrew into Greek. Is that what you're saying? Yep. Yeah, okay. Now, something that Dr. Hamilton said at one point might have appeared to be a suggestion that perhaps the Hebrew Old Testament's use of rosh, head, to convey the meaning of leader, influenced Paul to do the same with kephale. If that's what he was in fact suggesting, how would you respond to that? Yes, Hamilton did suggest that, quote, Paul was influenced by the Hebrew Bible, unquote, to use kephale to mean leader. Even though the Septuagint translator's use of kephale shows that this was not a normal use of kephale. I appeal to the highly regarded Evangelical New Testament scholar who taught for many years at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Richard Longnecker, in Biblical Exegesis in the Apostolic Period. 
On page 113, he writes, Of the approximately 100 Old Testament passages quoted by Paul in his letters, over half are either absolute or virtual reproductions of the Septuagint, with almost half of these at variance with the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text. On the other hand, four are in four, that's only four, are in agreement with the Masoretic text against the Septuagint text, and approximately 40 vary from both the Septuagint and the Masoretic text to a greater or lesser degree. This indicates that the Septuagint was a far greater influence on Paul than the Masoretic text. Would it follow then, uh, at least would it, would that tend to lend itself, if it's true that the Septuagint translators highly favored uh, other Greek words when translating Rosh uh, to mean leader? It's uh, true, yes. Yeah, assuming that to be true, that would actually seem to suggest, it seems to me, that the, the Septuagint's being the far greater influence on Paul, it would be highly unlikely that Paul would use uh, kephale to to um, to mean leader is that is that kind of what you're saying? That's exactly my point. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's something to, something for us to research further. Now, Dr. Hamilton quoted from Grudem's Evangelical Feminism, saying, "Quote: No one has yet produced one text in ancient Greek literature from the eighth century B.C. to the fourth century A.D. where a person is called the kephale or head of another person or group, and that person is not the one in authority over that other person or group." Unquote. So, what do you say to that? I gave many examples of precisely this back in 1986 in Woman, Authority, in the Bible, and more in Man and Woman, One in Christ. For instance, in Paul's time, Philo wrote in the Preliminary Studies 61, quote, Of all the members of the clan here described, Esau is the progenitor, the head, kephale, of the whole creature. Philo consistently uses the word progenitor to refer to the founder or first ancestor of a family, as do other writers when referring to dead people who are the founder of a clan. This instance cannot mean ruler of created beings, as Grudem proposes, since this sense invariably refers to a god, and since Esau was dead and had no authority over the clan that continues. The core semantic value of progenitor is the source from which something develops, the originator not merely that something is first, and certainly not authority. Another example, Philo's On Rewards and Punishments, 125, identifies, quote, the virtuous one, whether single man or people, will be the head kephale, which is explained by the editor as the source of spiritual life of the human race, and all the others, like the limbs of the body, which draw their life from the forces in the head, kephale. In both cases, the person called head is not an authority over the group identified. Artemidorus Daldiani frequently uses head figurative, figuratively and explains the symbolism of, of head in dreams. The head, kephale, is the source of life and light for the whole body. The head, kephale, indicates one's father. The head, kephale, resembles parents in that it is the cause of one's being. And the head, kephale, signifies the father of the dreamer. Whenever a poor man who has a rich father dreams that his own head, kephale, has been removed by a lion and that he dies as a result, it's probable that his father will die. For the head, kephale, represents the father, the removal of the head, the death of the father. Dead fathers have no authority over their children. 
but they are the source of the children. Sure. And he explicitly explains it as source. Yeah, and, and I'll admit that it's that second point you just made, which I find most persuasive, uh, that that they when they when they liken uh, the head when they use this, the person's head as a symbol for their father they explicitly say that the reason that the the, the meaning of that symbolism is uh, that the father is the source of the children however I, I will say um, if the president were to die you know heaven forbid God forbid if if the president were to die we would still probably call him the president the president is dead. And we would, and by president, we would mean that you know we would be referring to a position of authority. It just happens that he's dead. So, so I'm a little skeptical about about the, the first point you made, which is that dead people don't have authority over their children, because it st- seems to me that by referring to them as father, even though they're dead, they can still ha- carry that connotation. You know what I mean? Uh, in each of these passages, the person called Kephale, head of another person or group, is not in authority over that other person or group. Yet Hamilton and Grudem claim no one has yet produced one text in ancient Greek literature from the 8th century to the 4th century AD showing exactly what these passages show. And these are just examples from Paul's time. Also from Paul's time, but referring to someone other than a person, the Apocalypse of Moses 19.3 calls lust the head of every sin. This conveys that lust is the source of every sin, but lust has no authority over other sins. Yeah, that's true. Similarly, Testament of Reuben 2.2 states, For seven spirits are established against mankind, and they are the sources, literally it's the kephali, the heads, of the deeds of youth. Yet they have no authority over the deeds of youth. Interestingly, Fitzmaier, whom Grudem repeatedly cites affirmatively, in fact, on seven different pages in, in his book, argues that each of the above citations means source. And concludes, these examples show that Kephale could indeed be used in the sense of source. Virtually all other scholars who comment on these passages agree that they used Kephale to mean source, not authority. I conclude that even though Hamilton states that Grudem has demonstrated decisively that no one has yet produced one text in ancient Greek literature from the 8th century BC to the 4th century AD where it is only source and not also authority, Every one of these examples shows this is simply not true, and it was not true in Paul's time. Okay, yeah. Well, that, that gives us that gives us uh, some things to research. Um, I, I think I generally agree for the most part with with what you just said. Um, now, but but here's the thing: as evidence that Kephale is used by Paul to refer to a position of authority, Doctor Hamilton cited Ephesians one twenty two, in which Paul writes that God subjected all things to Christ, making him the head, Kephale, over all things of the church. He suggested that it's impossible to make that head mean anything other than a position of authority. And I'll admit that I, I found that persuasive when, when he said it. But is that true? How, how can Kephale mean source here, particularly in light of the fact that God has subjected all things to Christ? Uh, if it doesn't also refer to a position of authority. Although Hamilton said he read my book very carefully, he obviously did not read what it says about Kephale in Ephesians 121. Page 128 states, quote, the meaning top or crown fits Ephesians 122. Hamilton was right to stress that this passage gives a spatial metaphor of Christ being above. The context reinforces this using five spatial expressions. Verse 20 affirms that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The first word of verse 21, translated far above, is a combination of the Greek spatial words over and above. This emphasized Christ's exalted position 
above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. Paul's affirmation of Christ's exalted position above all rule and authority and power and dominion in the age to come directly contradicts the subordinationist view that Christ will be under the authority of the Father in the age to come. Verse 22 continues his focus on Christ spatially above, first by stating he has put all things under his feet, and second by affirming that God gave him head over all things to the church. God gave the exalted Christ, exalted over all things, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is not an affirmation of Christ having authority over the church, but rather of God giving Christ exalted over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Head in this verse conveys the standard Greek metaphorical meaning top, namely that Christ, meaning that God gives Christ as exalted over all things to the church. Because the context specifies that Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, his being top includes his being top in rule and authority and power and dominion. But Christ is also above every name, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Indeed, Christ as head in the sense of top over all things, uh, he is head in the sense of top over all things, and this very passage identifies Christ being top also in love, in grace, in redemption, in forgiveness, in wisdom, in knowledge, and in all that can be inherited. It's because of God's gift to the church of Christ who is top over all things that Paul can say in verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The same word he uses for heavenly places in verse 20 just above. This is why verse 5 states, he destined us in love to be his sons through Christ Jesus, and why verse 6 speaks of God's glorious grace which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. It's because of this gift of the church of Christ who is top over all things that verses 7 and 8 affirm, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. It's because Christ is first over all these things the verses 17 and 18 says God can give us a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the states, in the saints. Paul's breadth of vision in this passage fits far better with the standard metaphorical meaning of head as top, here top over all things, than restricted to simply authority, which is not a standard Greek metaphorical meaning for head, according to the most exhaustive Greek lexicon. Okay, that's like drinking out of a fire hose. Uh, that, that's a lot of information, and it's, it's definitely intriguing. I'm just curious, can, can you give me uh, one or two examples where kephale has this positional meaning of top or over rather than uh, or in addition to source? Uh, if you just take any uh, Greek lexicon, whether it's New Testament Greek lexicon or classical Greek lexicon, any period, uh, if you look at the word kephale, you'll find top and lots of examples. Okay. All right. I'll encourage my readers to do that. Now, 
Dr. Hamilton had also pointed to Colossians 1.18, where Jesus called the Kephale of the church, uh, because Paul had just talked about the thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities which were created for and by him. How is Kephale as source but not ruler compatible with this passage? Just because Christ is the authority of the church does not mean that every passage about Christ and the church is about Christ's authority. Mm. Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is not a, not just about authority. It's a poem about the person and work of Christ. It begins in verse 15 with the fundamental assertion of his nature. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, namely first in honor. Verses 16 to 18 give reasons why Christ is first in honor. All things were created by and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of his body, the church. He is the source of the body's life. He is the firstborn son who was raised from death, as today's English version translates it. He is the head of the body, combines a memorable anatomical pair, head and body. But it begs for explanation which Paul provides with a pair of appositional phrases. First, he defines body by apposition. The body, the church. Then he explains head with the immediately following appositional phrase in verse 18. Who is the source? Hos estenhe arche, or as the NAB translates it, origin. This exactly matches the grammatical construction of he is the head. Autos estenhe kephale. This is the standard grammatical indicator of apposition, where an author defines what he means by repeating the same grammatical construction, but substituting for the ambiguous word one that makes its meaning clear. Just as Paul immediately before, uh, just as he does immediately before to explain that the body is the church, the word that explains head is source, arche. It commonly refers to originating power, source, or origin in this sense, fits the context perfectly. Christ is the source of the church, the one who gives it life and sustains its life. This understanding of head as source is immediately confirmed by the following reference to Christ's resurrection in verse 18, by Paul's explanation of Christ's goal in verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And the theme in verses 21 to 23 of reconciliation by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. This all reinforces that Christ is the source of the church. None of it refers to Christ as the authority over the church. Mm. The reference to Christ as the head of the body follows a series of other affirmations of Christ as the source of all things, as creator in verses 15 to 17. The meaning of kephale, head, in this context is that Christ is the source of the church through his redemptive death and resurrection. Because of who Christ is, the creator of all things and of the church, he is rightly first in everything, Colossians 1.18. The very next chapter confirms that Paul intends Christ, the head of the church, to identify Christ as the source of the church. Colossians 2.19 affirms Christ, quote, the head from whom the body grows. The standard New Testament Greek dictionary, Baradanker Art and Gingrich, identifies head here as, quote, denoting origin, cause, 
motive, reason, source from which something flows or comes. Mm. So, of course, Christ is the authority of the church. But there's no reference in this passage to Christ's authority over the church. Just listen to the flow of Paul's argument in Colossians 1, 16-22, and it will be clear that his focus is on Christ as source. I'm going to read straight through you so you get the whole context. Sure. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. Source is always before. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the source, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Throughout, the focus is on, is on Christ as the source, not only of creation, but also of the church, through his reconciling work on the cross. Furthermore, Paul uses apposition to explain what he means by head. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the source. It makes, it makes it unmistakable that he's referring to source of the church by his immediately following reference to the firstborn from the dead. In case there's any question about this referring to Christ's redemptive work on the cross, he adds, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. Paul reinforces his laser-like focus on Christ as the source of the church in his next two verses as well, 21 and 2. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So, as you can see, it is the context that reinforces the meaning source. But most importantly, Paul himself immediately defines what he means by head here, who is the source. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty persuasive. It does it does strike me as though every imaginable contextual factor in the context here, uh, every every imaginable factor seems to tell us what what head means here. Uh, so I'd be interested to hear what Dr. Hamilton's response to that would be. Um, so we've we've spent a lot of time with Kefalay. I think it's really useful information. But let's move on now to discussing th this idea of mutual submission. Dr. Hamilton had stated regarding mutual submission in Ephesians five that. If pain is right that there is mutual submission, then we would absolutely have to say that in this analogy, Paul also envisions that Christ would submit to the church in the same way that wives are called to submit to their husbands. In fact, if I recall, I think that Dr. Hamilton uh, uh, pointed out that there were some egalitarian, uh, an egalitarian book with a title that was actually suggesting that Christ submits to the church in that same way. So what do you respond to this? How do you respond to this idea? Never have I taught that Christ must submit to the church in the way that wives are called to submit to their husbands. Furthermore, I reject that this is logically entailed in Paul's words or my understanding of Paul's words here. Dr. Hamilton appears to be assuming two things. First, he appears to assume that Paul in this chapter envisages an analogy between Christ and husbands that treats Christ as the model for husbands to follow 
but not wives. Mm. Yet Ephesians 5, 2, addressing the entire church, including wives, commands, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So it should be obvious that what Paul states in verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, does not in, he does not intend this to be a command that exclusively applies to husbands, since he's already in this chapter commanded this for wives as well in parallel terminology. Hmm. Dr. Hamilton's statement also seems to require that if the obligations between husband and wife are reciprocal, which is necessarily entailed in Paul's use of the reciprocal pronoun in submitting to one another, then the obligations between Christ and the church must be reciprocal. But the passage never states that the obligations between Christ and the church must be reciprocal. And I never state that they must be reciprocal. Just because Christians are called repeatedly throughout the New Testament to imitate Christ, this in no way entails that Christ must necessarily imitate believers. So where does Dr. Hamilton get this notion? And what logic does he think entails this? Frankly, I have no idea. Mm. But it certainly sounds like he completely misunderstands the nature of analogical language about God. Virtually all language about God is analogical. Typically, such analogical language is intended to highlight a particular point of similarity, even though such human language about God often also entails other points of dissimilarity. God is a rock and a fortress in his stability, but in most other respects, God is not at all like a rock or a fortress. <laughs> such metaphors demand both similarity and dissimilarity, and this tension is what makes them powerful, for they force us to think about how these things resemble God. Mm. <clears throat> it's not legitimate for Hamilton to extrapolate from Paul's analogy between Christ and husbands and Paul's implication that a wife's submission is in the context of mutual submission, that Paul would then necessarily envision that Christ would submit to the church in the same way that wives are called to submit to their husbands. Okay, I, I, I can see that. It, it does seem on the surface, to, let me put it this way, I, I can understand why somebody might think that if Paul says, husbands, love your wives the way that Christ loves his wife, the church, you know, I, I'm obviously paraphrasing, uh, why, if in that context submission is to be mutual between husbands and wives, why he might think that that's got to have, that there's got to be an element of that in the analogy. Um so I just want to say I can understand why somebody would come away thinking that. But I think you're right. There's nothing logically in it that requires that, particularly in light of, as you say, many other analogies to God that clearly involve both similarities and dissim dissimilarities. But the analogy in this case is how the husbands should imitate Christ. Mm -hmm. The analogy is not about how Christ should imitate husbands. Nothing in the passage states that. Yeah, I understand. But so – but the thing is, he says, yeah, okay, I'll, 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 we'll let the listeners think some more about this. I, I, I hear what you're saying, I do. Uh, but, but it does, he's not, Hamilton isn't alone in seeing that connection, and I would have as well if I hadn't thought through it more clearly. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll think through this. My, my listeners and I, I'm sure, will think through this a little bit more. Well, there you have it, part one of my second interview with egalitarian Dr. Philip Payne, this time responding to complementarian Jim Hamilton. Join us for the next episode of the Theapologetics Podcast for part two. Until then... Yeah.